The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, November 20th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Show of hands. How many people heard the anecdote about Gary Cohen asking for a show of hands with a bunch of Fortune 500 CEOs? Ball guy down front. You heard it. Lady in the back. She knows what I'm talking about. At a recent Wall Street Journal uh interview with Gary Cohn, of course, the, the top economic advisor in the White House. Uh, they polled the audience, the, the CEOs in that group, uh, who among you would actually reinvest this tax cut in, into your company and raise wages? And only five people in this large group raised their hands. Not just Andrea Mitchell, they're hosting Meet the Press. There was Chris Hayes on Seth Meyers relaying the same anecdote. The other day, Gary Cohn, economic advisor, is in a room full of CEOs. And someone sends them and says, Show, raise your hand if you're going to give people raises and invest in capital investment. And, like, no one raises their hand. Yeah. And, and he, he did it. He was hoping that it would be a sea of hands. He even said, why aren't people's hands up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and today on Morning Joe, get cited again. There was a story about Gary Cohn asking CEOs, how many of you are going to invest yeah. once yeah. we give you this great <laughs> oh Christmas God. present yeah. tax cut? And he's like, come on, everybody, raise your hands. And they weren't doing it. He didn't, get, he didn't get the response that he was expecting. <laughs> he didn't get the response he wanted, yeah. Now, when asked about how this could have happened, Mick Mulvaney, director of the Office of Management and Budget, on Face the Nation, gave this explanation. Yeah, I asked Gary about that afterwards, and my guess is, uh, if I'm a Fortune 500 CEO, I'm not going to tell my competitors who are sitting in the, in the aisle next to me what I'm going to do next year. They're going to do what's in their best interest and what we think is in their best Seen from the corporate boardroom the next day. Men! Oh yeah, and Cheryl. The most vital piece of corporate intel has dropped into my lap. As you know, we here at Procter & Gamble, we're going to benefit from this tax cut. But the question is, do we use that to create jobs? I just found out through a giant slip up of a hand raise that Colgate Palmolive is going to create jobs. This changes everything. Call the factory foreman. Let's call the showrooms. Get them ready. Men and Cheryl, we can't let this opportunity pass. Is that what happened? Or, alt theory, Gary Cohn is terrible at crowd work. Though the crowd of Fortune 500 CEOs, unless it's the late Friday show, dead, dead crowd. But hey, guys, we're giving you a big pile of cash. Oh, yeah. Who's going to plow it back into the economy? Huh? Huh? How many? That's not many. That's not. Come on. We, we got to hire a lot of American workers. Ladies, am I right? Ladies? Any ladies? No? Nothing? All right. How about the brothers out there in the Fortune 500? You know what I'm talking about. Nothing? All right. What do I do? What do I do? Oh, uh, my Anglo-Saxons in the house. How you doing? Uh, Gulf streams fly like this. But the Falcon 2000 flies like this. Am I right? All right. And the pilot is all like, please return seats to the upright position. And you're like, no, you're fired. Okay. Now you guys in the front, put on those rain slickers because it's the watermelon time. On the show today, Charles Manson died at the age of 83. Now, I guess you could say that he lived that long is a testament to what a lifetime of health care can do for a person, even one who carves swastikas in his head. But I am going to discuss another aspect of Charles Manson's notoriety. But first, the country of Zimbabwe saw a coup that didn't want to call itself a coup. And guess what? Who's still in place? Same guy. Will Robert Mugabe ever give up power? There are 
over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. We were told, as recently as a couple of days ago, that for the first time since it became a country, Zimbabwe would have a president other than Robert Mugabe. As we speak now, that seems not to be the case. The strong man is still holding on to power. So to speak about where we go from here, where they go from here, is Chippo Dendire, who is from Zimbabwe. She teaches at Amherst College. Hello, thanks for joining me. Thank you. We in America, the ones of us who pay attention to it, know him as a dictator, a strongman, which can mean absolute monarch or can mean just a wily inveigler within a system that he has outsized control over. So how functional is the state system independent of Mugabe in Zimbabwe? So unlike other countries, Zimbabwe has always had elections. So we can talk about whether or not these elections were good, if they were rigged, if they were bad. Whatever Robert Mugabe has done, including some of the things that I think are pretty awful, those have all been done through legal bills. So, for example, when they decided to sense social media engagement by citizens, they created an entire ministry to monitor social media. So that's very different from how other dictators would just wake up and say, don't do these things online. We're going to shut down the Internet. We're going to send soldiers to you. So Robert Mugabe understands the power of laws, and he's always been able to use laws to his advantage. Now, to talk about the Constitution, the Constitution of Zimbabwe is very clear. There are two ways in which a president can leave office through the Constitution. The first way is the easy way, which is either through death or resignation. The second way, if he resigns, all he had to do was to write a letter to the Speaker of Parliament. And yesterday in his speech, instead of ending with uh, good night, Asante Sana, he could have ended with I now resign the office of the president. So that's what he could have done. And that process would have taken anywhere between 24 and 48 hours uh, before the country had a new president. Now, people are proposing, at least the ZANU-PF is proposing impeachment. Impeachment is very, very complicated. I'm sure Americans have a lot of um, experience talking about impeachment processes. First, what needs to happen is that we need two-thirds majority of the joint parliament and Senate to pass a resolution that they want to impeach the president. Mm -hmm. And in that resolution, they have to say why. Okay, let me stop you right there. His party, which he controls, which is what, ZANU-PF? Yes. Yes. Uh, What percent of parliament and Senate is that party? So I'm trying to work out the numbers, and we don't know because some of the people haven't been replaced, but they do have a majority in parliament, but not in Senate. Okay. So they would need to work with the opposition. But then this is where it gets interesting, right? Right now, ZANU-PF is split into two factions, and your American readers might enjoy this. The first faction, which was led by the first lady, is called the G40 faction. Mm -hmm. Uh, These people emulated uh, sort of President Barack Obama when Barack Obama came into 
into power. He was in his 40s and they too believed that somebody in his 40s should be president. So that's yeah. called the G40 faction. I'm sure, by the way, that Barack Obama would be terribly complimented by a faction of the ZANU-PF drawing <laughs> inspiration from him. <laughs> yes, that's why I thought I should mention it. I don't think he would appreciate <laughs> right. it at all. But the second one is more fun. It's called the Lacoste faction. So the brand Lacoste uh, with the crocodile. Right. Yes, because the former vice president, Emerson Mnangagwa's totem is the crocodile. He's also nicknamed the crocodile because he's very tough. Yes. So now we've got the Lacoste faction and the G40 faction. In parliament right now, the G40 faction had more people than the Lacoste faction. So while ZANU-PF has a total majority in parliament, we don't know how the G40 people will vote. So let's say they do get two-thirds majority of the total of parliament and senate to pass this resolution this resolution still needs to go to a nine-member committee so the nine-member committee has to be representative of both houses of government right so it has to be representative of parliament and senate and as of this afternoon the opposition was saying you know what we will vote with you if you are willing to negotiate with us on things that are important to the opposition like human rights legal frameworks civil liberties free media and the ZANU-PF leadership, they have a problem because some of their leaders are pretty hardline. So one of them made a statement that, no, we don't need the opposition. We can do this on, on our own. So what you're saying is that the solution to this, even though it was set off by a military, let's not call it a coup, is going to be political. And the Zimbabwean version of Chuck Todd is going to be there on TV with a dry erase board counting votes. I mean, this will be resolved in your estimation by a vote and a political process uh, as defined by Zimbabweans. Well, now there is another caveat. <laughs> the military, they said that the former vice president, uh, Emerson Mnangagwa, was coming back to the country and that him and Robert Mugabe were going to sit down and have a face-to-face and try to come up with uh, a resolution. Now, if you know Robert Mugabe, you know that he's very calculating. So yesterday in his speech, something that a lot of people are not talking about is he pulled from his speech in 1980, the speech that made him a very popular man, where he talked about reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And in that speech, he said to ZANU-PF, look, if we were able to forgive our colonizers, why would we not be able to work together as ZANU-PF focused on our revolutionary agenda? Uh, That's before he told people that it's raining and they should go and farm. But he did focus on the revolutionary nature of ZANU-PF and the importance of reconciliation within the party. So does this show, does this whole episode show that maybe Mugabe has more moves left than would be indicated by, you know, the visions of him as a 93-year-old nodding off at international conferences? Well, I think a lot of people underestimated him, not just him, but also the people that are working with him. So he has he has some cards to play. And I think what's helped ZANU-PF stay in power is their ability to, to maneuver legalese, right? How do you use laws to your advantage? And I think that's been the power of what they've done so far. Right. It's not as if uh, he's a dictator. He kills people. He oppresses people. But a case can also be made that he has the people on his side to the extent that they don't really get a free media. And also, let's, let's note the fact that so much of the middle class has just fled the country, so any opposition isn't there are still being active political actors. But, you know, he still has a base of appeal and power, does he not? 
Zimbabweans have a love-hate relationship with Robert Mugabe, where they absolutely respect what he did for the country early on. But life is getting harder. The withdrawal limits at the bank were almost down to zero. You couldn't take $20 out of the bank. That's how bad things have become in Zimbabwe. Right. You've talked about the middle class that's left the country. That's a group that I've studied for a long time. In the middle class, uh, at least in the people that are in the diaspora, the average Zimbabwean immigrant is forced, okay, not forced, but is having to send at least 500 US dollars a month to support their families back home. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of strain on not just on the diaspora, but on their families that they're supporting back home. So so Zimbabweans are anxious for change. They're desperate to see something happen. And yesterday, he disappointed millions of people. For observers who just want what's best for the people of Zimbabwe, uh, is there a choice between, is there a better choice between Grace, his wife, who's in her 50s, the crocodile, Emerson Mungagwa, or is there some third choice out there that people can think about? Well, constitutionally, the third choice is what people don't want. It is uh, VP Pekezela Mpoko who would have come in. But people say that he's a buffoon, he's a joke, he's all of these things. Uh, As a scholar of political science, I think, look, even if someone is a buffoon, if the constitution says that he's the one who should take over, let him take over until the elections in July. But right now, it looks like we are headed towards um, some negotiation that might see Emerson Nangago come into office and maybe finish the term and then Zimbabwe would have elections next year. The missing part is that the opposition has become weakened over time. And in part, it's because it's hard to run as the opposition for at least 17 years. That's really hard. There's quite a leadership vacuum uh, for the opposition. So what we might end up with is a much, much stronger ZANU-PF, which is very problematic on all ends. But people say that Emerson Mnangagwa would be good at business, uh, that the West would be able to negotiate with him. They would just need to deal with whether or not he was involved in the massacre of um, Zimbabwean citizens in Matib. So that's something that friends of Zimbabwe would have to deal with in their conscience, that they say to themselves, look, we're not going to look at this history of this man. We're going to focus on helping Zimbabwe rebuild their country. But I think it's a it's a tough conversation that we should all be having right now. Yeah. Turns out the crocodile has some baggage. So he does. Yeah. So. Do you think Zimbabwe is so much of an economic basket case or is so much of a dysfunctional society? Is it truly a failed state? Is there any coming back? Uh, As you say, just someone new in there will engender some goodwill in the West. They'll get better lending terms, for instance. How far can Zimbabwe come if uh, Mugabe is replaced with one of his likely replacements? So the way to think about Zimbabwe, think of it as a really strong house, right? With a great foundation, everything looks nice, but the people that have been living in the house haven't been taking great care of it. So some of the pipes are not working well, uh, the couches are broken, etc., etc. That type of house, if somebody who's organized, right, uh, a Martha Stewart, if you will, comes in, they can whip it up and make it look nice. That's what Zimbabwe needs. After the 2008 election, when the country formed a government of national unity, it was an overnight change. You know, I was at home. We had been struggling to get things in the store. And almost overnight, the stores were were full again. Zimbabweans are hardworking. If this conversation has told the world anything, it's that Zimbabwe has a highly educated society. 
Zimbabweans are not going to go into the streets and destroy their homes and destroy their properties. What we need is a government that functions. It's a government that understands trade law, that when you want to do business in Zimbabwe, you should be able to do business very well. Uh, white Zimbabweans who own farms are frustrated with working outside of the country. Many of them are ready to come home. The diaspora uh, Zimbabwean immigrants, which I study, they send at least $4 billion a year in remittances. I've been talking to many of them over the last few the week, and they are ready to invest in their country. Uh, I've talked to American businesses that are ready to invest in Zimbabwe. You know, Zimbabwe has a lot of minerals. It's very peaceful. Mm-hmm. I know that that sounds like an oxymoron, but the violence that you see in Zimbabwe doesn't come from the people. The violence has always come from the state. Zimbabwe just needs a different kind of leadership, a leadership that's committed. And I don't say this because I'm Zimbabwean, but I, I say this as a scholar of African politics who can tell you places that will recover quickly and places that simply won't recover quickly. Chippo Dandire is a visiting assistant professor of political science teaching at Amherst College. Thank you so much, Chippo. Thank you. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. Charles Manson long ago ceased to be a screwed up little outcast who orchestrated the murder of seven people in 1969 and became a totemic symbol of craziness, mayhem, and 60s excess. Every era gets the serial killer it deserves, and the late 60s got Manson. Manson, reform school, habitué, turned cult leader, showed how easy it is to be a cult leader. So much of the Manson story is shocking because it is just so trite. He gained powers of persuasion by reading Dale Carnegie in prison. And so much is shocking because of how deeply stupid Manson and his followers were. In an attempt to set off a race war, they wrote Helter Skelter on the walls in blood, and Helter Skelter was misspelled. Deeply stupid. They hitchhiked home from a murder. They were supposed to carry out another murder, but acolyte Linda Kasabian didn't want to do it. So instead, Susan Atkins defecated in a stairwell. In truth, it is actually not hard to kill another person or series of people if you don't care about getting caught. I guess what was shocking about Manson was how easy it seemed for him to persuade others to kill for him. And maybe that really was the indictment of the 60s. Not that hippies could be twisted into the means of societal destruction, but that there were so many of these poor, wastrel youths ripe for victimization. So remember when I said that Manson reflected the era? Yes, he was the devilish embodiment of our anxieties. And I guess you can make the same case for, let's take a couple other notorious serial murderers. The 1970s in New York, they got the son of Sam. He was killing kids on outer borough lovers' lanes as societal upheaval spread through what were once ethnic enclaves. John Wayne Gacy's murders were discovered just at the dawn of the Reagan era. Of course, he was this respectable businessman who was really raping and killing. But you know what? 
I just think that lurid tales of cannibalism or mass murder or depravity are always going to draw attention. And they put Bundy down, a fellow prisoner took care of Dahmer, and Berkowitz parceled out interviews over the years claiming to have found Jesus. So that left Manson alone, alive, acting according to script, perpetuating his image as a deranged puppet master, constantly inviting attention. I guess you can say that he ultimately did understand his cult appeal. Have you noticed there hasn't been a serial killer which has grabbed the public's attention in decades? Yes, there was the BTK killer in Kansas, Doug Rader. Did you remember that guy's name? You did not because he failed to capture the public's imagination. And there have been, def- there definitely have been serial killers. Often they prey on prostitutes or women of color, and therefore they don't get noticed. The grim sleeper killed, could be into the dozens of women. He was convicted for 10, I think. Since they were mostly black, it didn't get the attention of other serial killers. So why have there been no better-known serial killers as of late? I think terrorists have taken their place in the imagination. Boogeymen who, unlike serial killers, don't live among us, but are quite real. Also, spree killers have higher death tolls than all but the most active of serial killers. They, one after the other, speak to the current anxiety, which is randomness. But ultimately, both serial killers and spree killers represent a distorted view of danger and crime. We should be having an entirely different conversation about homicide in America. But of course, focusing on the aberrant behavior of the few distracts us from the fact that what's really aberrant is their method of killing compared to the humdrum gun murders that continue to set records in the Western world. Charles Manson was ultimately a killer, but also a symbol, and he sought to set off a panic. And in a way, he did, just not the one he wanted. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who does not like Gary Cohn's stand-up, but is a fan of Wilbur Ross's bird calls. Mary Wilson, Gist producer, goes in for Ryan and Wolfgang Zinke's Team Synchronized Swimming. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Back when Sebastian Gorka was there, oh, the shadow puppets he did. The Gist, huge fans of Steve Mnuchin and his plate-spinning extravaganza. That's why Louise loves the guy. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>